Don't you love how these bleachers sing to you as you walk across them? <laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you, and uh, Mara, thank you for that beautiful reading of Scripture, and I greet you in the name of Christ. Uh, this, the theme for this academic year is the life of discipleship, and I have a t-shirt to prove it. Isn't that great? I tell you, Asbury, we are we are t-shirt producing community. Let me tell you, we produce spirit-filled people, but also t-shirts. What does it mean? This is my question for you this morning. What does it mean to be a disciple? I notice in some modern translations, you're starting to see a little creeping in where the word disciple is dropping out and the word student is put in its place, as in Luke 6.40. But the word student does not have quite the connotative power of the word disciple in the New Testament. And I want to prove it to you by telling you, because after all, most of you in this room are students, and you know a lot about what it means to be a student. Did you know that the government has had to define you? That's right, because we have issues related to privacy. We have issues related to student loans. We have issues related to uh, all kinds of discrimination issues, etc. And we have to abide by those. And so at some point, the government decided they had to define you. And you go on the FERPA website, and you can actually see there the official definition of a student, which I will graciously share with you at this point. Be prepared to be inspired. <laughs> a student, according to the beloved U.S. government, is an individual for whom an educational institution maintains educational records. Inspiring, isn't it? <laughs> Believe me, the word mathetes, the, the word disciple is a much bigger word than that, a deeper word. It's about something that involves not just learning, but being formed and shaped by the teacher. And we at Asbury, we want to regard you not as students only, we're not less than that, of course, but more we want to regard you as disciples. In fact, Jesus, in the Matthew's Great Commission, a uh, rendition of that, the only command form found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, is in fact the one verb, two, two words in English, but the one verb, make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptize in the name of the Father and the Son, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I'm with you always into the age. Baptize, teaching, all of that, that's not, a, that's not a command form. The only command form in that text is make disciples. It is at the heart of what God has called us to do and to be as his people. Nobody in this room came here simply to build up educational records. And I promise you, we don't exist as our teacher administrators to maintain them. Though we do have a fireproof box that keeps all your records. Don't worry, we got them. We have so much more than that in mind for you and for all of us. It involves both formal theological education, welcome to seminary, but also deep truths which are formed in you. That's a, that's a, that's a, myst a mystery, how that happens in your life. And yet we're committed to that mystery as well because there are many things that will happen to you here that are beyond simple learning explanation 
but are part of a mystery. In fact, one of the many idols we have to kill here is the idea that something is only true if you can explain it. That's one of the evangelical sins. Oh, well, you come here to learn things so you can explain them things, and people then will believe things. And, of course, that is true. You've been called to learn many things so you can explain many things. But there's also, there's a mystery to the whole thing that you're being invited into which defies so much of what we often think about. In fact, you are to be a holy mystery. The word sacrament comes from the Latin sacer holy and the Greek ending mysterion, holy mystery. Sacrament means holy mystery. And a sacrament is not simply something you do, like being baptized, or something that you take as in Eucharist. It's never less than that. But a sacrament is also something that happens in you. It's something you are. God is shaping you to be a mobile sacrament in the world. We are to be part of God's holy mystery in the world. And it surely defies full human explanation. I taught this sermon, which I don't think would work well in a bulletin in a church, but is Our Bodies Fashioned as Holy Mysteries. That's a good seminary title for a sermon message. I think if I was doing this in a church, I would say, Our bodies are talking to us. Are we listening? This uh, semester, I'm going to focus my sermons on discipleship of the body. The theme is discipleship, and we're going to look over the course of the academic year of discipling of the body, discipling of the mind, and discipleship of the Spirit. And I'll be preaching through all those themes throughout the year. But we're going to start out with the one most neglected, which is the discipleship of the body and helping to help form in you a theology of the body. And most of us, when we hear the phrase theology of the body, wonder what in the world is that even talking about? What does it mean? There's something about our bodies telling us about God's redemptive purposes his plans for us, and we'll see how this unfolds. Our body's message has been scrambled, and I, I, I think this message, or all these messages, are about a lot more than issues of human sexuality and issues of bodily identity, but there was no question that the world that you're entering has serious challenges regarding these particular issues, which, which we will touch upon. And I think, um, for me, one of the turning points, so this is an unfolding for decades, what happened in the year 2015. Now, if you remember, June of 2015 was the moment, uh, June 26th to be exact, when the uh, Obergefell versus Hodges decision was reached and announced a 6-4 decision in the Supreme Court um, that, uh, can't be 6-4, sorry, 5-4, I do know my American history a little bit, 5-4 decision in the Supreme Court that legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. The other uh, event that happened, amazingly, the exact same month was when uh, Bruce Jenner of decathlon fame, for those of us in my generation, but certainly who became even more famous as uh, part of the Kardashians, the, uh, we won't go into all the Kardashians, but you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> the Kardashians of Kardashian fame, who uh, Bruce Jenner trans transitioned and became a woman and she was the first transgender woman to appear on the cover of a Glamour magazine, Vanity Fair. And even though it's a pop culture thing, it was in fact a huge event. And of course the title of the front cover was Just Call Me Caitlin. Now that in some ways is the defining marker. I think I, I, I call that a 
crystallization moment in the sense that it was at that point that the world had been sufficiently catechized or formed into a certain way, an alternative way of viewing the body, which involves many things and no, no, nothing less than things like marriage and bodily identity, all that has become very, very fluid. Now the church, of course, has not simply been observers of these challenges. The church, of course, has been very much involved and not immune to these struggles. And I think one of the challenges is, and it'd be interesting if we had time to break up into focus groups here or small groups and actually ask all of you in groups of four, what is this all about? What is this struggle about? What is this about? Why, do we, why are we arguing about this? What is at the root of the whole thing? And we would, of course, ask questions like, well, is this about, uh, is this a really a struggle over justice issues? Is this a fight over human dignity and human rights? Is it a fight about individual freedom? Is it a fight about the biblical definition of marriage? Is this a fight about the authority of Scripture? I mean, I'm sure all of those and more would come out. And, of course, the answer is yes. It's yes. It's about all of those things. And many, many more are being discussed today. But the point I like to make is underneath all of that, and those are all really important questions, of course, but is there something deeper at play here? Is there a deeper question that we are not asking that we do need to ask? That's part of this discipleship of the body that we're trying to get into. Because there's actually several problems when you look at this issue. One is this is actually a part of a uh, massive, massive church struggle that in some ways uh, is what I would call a, how about this for a phrase, the harmatological myopia. How about that? Uh, in other words, we have focused, you know, we've, like myopically we've focused on a particular sin, like same-sex marriage or whatever, and we've said, we're going to take this out and we're going to fight to the end on that. And we, we lose sight of, looking back, at the whole landscape of brokenness, of sexual brokenness and otherwise, that it just littered across our culture. Normalization of adultery, the explosive use of digital pornography, cohabiting out of wedlock, fornication, Abortion, still claiming every year 800 to 900,000 children every year just in America. Doctor-assisted suicide. Uh, violent video games that involve first-person killing. And on and on it goes. And the church has addressed these issues in kind of an exhausting serial fashion. You know, I remember, you know, in the 60s, the so-called Woodstock generation, we're fighting against the, uh, you know, the whole sexual revolution. In the 70s, it was Roe versus Wade, and we began to fight against uh, abortion. And then we had the rise of the Internet. Okay, then we, now we're fighting against digital pornography. And then in more recent years, we're fighting against same-sex marriage, and even more recently, uh, gender reassignment. And I think from the point of a few, many in the church, it's like, wow, it's like a laundry list of things that we seem to be fighting one after the other, and we're like kind of exhausted in the whole thing. And it could it be that actually we're not fighting about 15 different things? Could it really be about one thing? And we haven't even learned to name that one thing. No wonder we're exhausted. And I think we have to realize two things. First, 
It is woefully inadequate, woefully inadequate for you to simply look over this whole landscape and say at the end of that survey, we're against it. I think in my generation, we kind of like, we, we, skirt, we skated through on that, you know, and we kind of told the world essentially we're against same-sex marriage, we're against pornography, we're against changing your gender, we're against all those things, and I think the world kind of got it, we're against those things. But the point is, if you, after you tell someone you're against them about five times, it, it comes across as rather annoying. Because the point is, at your point, I think anybody going into ministry, into pastoral ministry or Christian ministry, once you pass June of 2015, I think that was the point where no longer will anybody in this room get a card in your hand, a get out of, get out of conflict free card that says you can get by by just telling people you're against these things. Because the real point, of course, not, is that, not that we're for it. We don't take ethics from the world. We don't take our theology from the world. But the point is, what the world wants to know and what we've got to know is, what are we for? What is the grand, compelling, electrifying vision, which is so amazing to the church, so electrifying, so compelling, so just captures our vision, that of course we say no to tons of things, and 15 things we not even talked about because I don't even know what they are yet. You'll eventually find out as the generations unfold. There'll be 10 more things we say no to, but because we have something that's captures that we're for. This is the great call for our time. And so I am arguing here that the single problem that underlines all of these issues is that we have not understood profoundly the nature of Christian embodiment. What it, how Christians understand human embodiment? We need a theology of the body. Now, over the course of these uh, sermons, we're going to look at seven, uh, as a starting point, at least seven foundation stones to build this wonderful positive vision that God calls us to. And we're going to look at two of them today. The first is this. Creation is good, and therefore it's trustworthy. The creative text in Genesis 1 records God joyfully creating the world and calling it very, very good, very good. We have a good creation. The word image, the selim, that word is used three times in just two verses that God created us in his image. Now in the history of redemption, three of the most uh, remarkable moments, two of them have right here, Somebody by the word, the, the phrase, he spoke, he breathed, and he entered. He spoke the world into existence, he breathed into his breath of life, and someday in the incarnation he entered the world through the incarnation. Without that, we have no Christian gospel. And two of those are right here. One third we'll see is already embodied in this as well. I think that moment where God imparts his image to us, is probably best captured, and by your own downloads and our downloads and our reproductions, it's, it, this is well believed, is in that uh, famous painting, 1521, by Michelangelo on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You know, the picture of, of where God is reaching out in that moment where he touches Adam and bestows upon him his image. It's the most 
reproduced piece of art in the world, a religious piece of art in the world. It even passed Michelangelo's Mona Lisa. I love that piece because it, it, it shows you the solemnity of that moment. And Adam is there in his raw physicality receiving this image from God. Now we don't have in the Bible any kind of neat definition of what it means to be an image of God. We know it's connected to our dominion, as you heard in our text today. It's connected to our being in relationship with God and walking with him in the garden, the capacity for relationship. We know that we are called to be his ambassadors, representatives. We know we are called to become his co-creators. We can create along with him, both in our, all the things we create, but particularly in the creation of, of children. We become co-creators with him. Of course, all of creation procreates, and so that's just that all creation mirrors his image, but we embody it in that we can actually create other image bearers. It's very, very remarkable what God's given to us. So here's the, New, the Old Testament, which just explodes on this scene, this amazing phrase that you and me are created by a good God, and he did something remarkably powerful. We are created in the image of God. And then in Genesis 9, 6, it never is mentioned again. We only have the marred use of idol, false idols, false images, all that, as you know, is full in the Old Testament. And the, new, the image of God phrase disappears from Genesis 9, 6 until the New Testament when it suddenly re-explodes into the people of God and Christ, like in Colossians 1, 15, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And I love that text, Romans 8, 29, which I think is the definition of discipleship. Our theme for the year, listen to this. He elected and called us so that, quote, we might be conformed to the image of his son so that, we might be the, uh, he, that he might be the first one among many brothers and sisters. In other words, discipleship is you being conformed to his image that he might bring you with him into glory. Now, this is a powerful realization that the image of God is not merely something inside of you. It is all of you. Well, this will take us several weeks to fully unfold, but the image of God is reflected in all of who you are, not just some part of you, not just some spiritual part of you, but you. Now, the world tells you and has a thousand ways to shame you. You're too fat. You're too thin. Your hair is too curly or not curly enough. Your teeth are not straight enough. And on and on it goes. Even the so-called models or airbrush, airbrush, because even they don't quite make it in this world of public shaming of your bodies. And the Word of God wants you in the morning when you get up and look in the mirror to say, there is an image bearer. Amen? There is an image bearer. And of course, we must take care of our bodies. That's a second level point in the New Testament. It's an important point, a second level point. You are first and foremost an image bearer. You're bearing God's image. Now this lack of trust in the human body 
is now infiltrating our culture, and this is a resurgence of Gnosticism. Gnostics in the first, second century and continuing on, particularly in that time frame, they were a major challenge to the church, and the church had to defend itself against an improper view of the body. So someone says, as is now common, uh, you know, I'm a, I know I'm biologically a man, but I'm, I'm trapped inside a woman's body, or vice versa. That, that, that kind of thing, which is now part of the cultural narrative. That in the perspective of the, of the biblical view, worldview, this is a disruption to the Christian understanding of the body. Because it's the Gnostics who taught those things, that the real you is that, that, you know, your heart in you, what you feel inside of you and all that, and that the body doesn't count, the body's to be shucked off and all of that. And today we're experiencing the rise of a neo-Gnosticism. Christianity has always taught the heart is deceitful, but the body is trustworthy. The culture wants to flip it and say, you know, your heart, your, your, your heart is always trustworthy and your body will always lead you astray. This is where we have to reaffirm a Christian view of the body. And I believe that I, I think Richard Dawkins, probably as much as anyone, has summarized the, cult, the new cultural narrative about, about you and me with what they believe. That we are part of, I'm quoting Richard Dawkins, the famous zoologist atheist, we are a naturalistic, amoral, evolutionary process which is mechanistic and lacking purpose with no moral framework. We are not in that camp. We do not believe that. We believe we're imbued with purpose and meaning and God has called us good and entered into the moral framework of his universe. When I was in India working there, uh, there's a, if you live in Madhya Pradesh at least, in central north India, there's a byword there and the word is Teraswaniya. Teraswaniya is a, it's a terrible, terrible place because this is the place in that part of India where humans that are considered unwanted get dumped. Drug addicts, prostitutes are there, put there. I mean, so when dignitaries come in, you know, and they want to make everything look really nice in the city and they don't want any problems to interfere, they sweep them up off the street and they dump them off in Teraswania. It's a real, real tragedy. And some years ago, we said, you know, why don't we sit around, you know, when we hear the word Teraswani, we shriek back and uh, why not go there and preach the gospel, plant churches, start schools? That's what we did. It's, it's, it's a reincarnation reenacted in small little form. You know, we, we, we go into that world and we... We embody the gospel, and we, we say by doing that that those women that were prostitutes, they matter to God. Those children, the hundreds of children that are there, just children, abandoned, running free, uh, sick, diseased, they matter to God. And we built schools there, and we, we started churches there, and, and the, you know, the new creations breaking into Teraswania. See, that's, that's, this is a positive vision of the body. It's so much a part of this. The second building block is our bodies are icons of spiritual realities. Now, 
this means that our bodies are, are pointers. I, I point one word. I, held, I have here before me uh, an icon. Have you seen this? This is the word in New, New Testament. All of you, if you haven't even had Greek yet, you now know one Greek word. The word for icon in Greek is icon. <laughs> you got it. There you go. This is an icon. Now, an icon, uh, one way to, to look at this is that this is a physical thing that points to a spiritual reality. And the Eastern Church really likes that. But I don't think they would like the word pointer. That's more of the word we would use. But a better word for this is that this is meant to be a window to a spiritual reality. So rather than looking at this, and by the way, this side here was, uh, was painted for me and a gift to our family by Abby Salazar, Asbury student. She's watching online today. Abby, God bless you. Her painting. Now, in the Eastern tradition, if, this, uh, if you look at this icon, you're supposed to actually look at it as a window where you're not looking at a painting of Jesus. You're looking through the window and you're seeing Jesus in the spiritual realm. You're seeing him in the heavenly realms. And that's actually what God intended for our bodies to be like. We are windows to spiritual realities. That's what it means to say your body is an icon of a spiritual reality. How so? Well, a couple of ways we'll mention and then we'll close. First of all, your body is an icon of what was once the future incarnation, now as we look back on the incarnation. So when God created the world, the Bible tells us that he already has the full plan of redemption before him because it, the whole of it, all of history is eternally now to him. So we're told, like in 1 Peter, for example, that you know, from the very beginning, from the created creation of God, he had planned on this. And we're told in Revelation, of course, that he, uh, 13.8, that he was slain from the creation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20, he was chosen with the creation of the world, etc., etc. So God, at the creation point, he had to fashion our bodies, think about this, in anticipation, knowing that someday he would enter it. Remember, he spoke, he breathed, he entered. He knew already at creation that someday he would enter the world. And your body, yes, your body, is the perfect receptacle that God designed in order to fit his incarnation for him to be embodied into the, into the world. That's a very amazing affirmation of our design and who we are. So we are walking around by virtue of this pointing to the incarnation and the physical bodily resurrection and even the, re the resurrection end of time, etc., this is why John, our text, points out to the church that was facing the exact same challenge that we're facing. This is that we're returning. You know, Satan runs through all of his tricks and then he recycles them again. So we're back down to Gnosticism again. And so John, who was facing the same world that you face, with all of the sexual morality that we, we are now facing, all of this and many other issues, and he says... This, and if you don't understand the Gnostic background, this makes no sense to you. This is how we recognize the Spirit of God. Okay, wow, now we're going to find out how to recognize the Spirit of God. Who would not want that? So I'm okay, ready, John, give it to me. Okay, he said, this is it. Any spirit that acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And any spirit does not acknowledge that Jesus come in the flesh is not from God. In fact, it's the Antichrist. And John is saying this is 
a huge point that the embodiment, because see, if your body is not trustworthy, then there can be no tr such trustworthy of the incarnation. We don't trust the incarnation. If your body's not trustworthy, we don't have a, a crucifixion. We don't have a resurrection. As Paul says, we don't even have your body resurrection in the time. All that gets washed away. These are not, you know, minor problems the church that we choose not to squabble about. No, these are central problems we have to fight about. Not fight against people, but fight for the theology that your body is important and sacred and it's a pointer to the great truths of the gospel. And then finally, your body is the foundational reality through which God conveys his grace to us. This is what's so beautiful about God's plan. God uh, creates us, and then he creates our bodies in a way, and as, as Jessica beautifully pointed out in opening worship, he created us to worship him. We created us to interact with him, right? So how does God do this? He does this through the means of grace. We spent a whole, all last year on the means of grace. And if you remember, we talked about things like, you know, uh, taking being baptized and, and taking the Eucharist and reading scripture and prayer and, you know, serving the poor, all these things. And there's many others, but we talked about the whole year we went through all the means of grace. But the point I want to make here on that is that all of those happen in and through the body. Your body is baptized. You take the Eucharist into your body. You hear scripture being read with your ears. You preach it with your mouth. You serve the poor with your feet and your hands. Everything, all of this, the ways in which God through this window brings his grace into our lives happens in and through the body. And so God has given us a remarkable opportunity to recognize afresh what it means to be embodied and the importance of that in his divine mystery. I want to close with a quick story. I was preaching uh, one time from Mark 7, the passage, where, remember, where Jesus sticks his fingers into the man's ears? And I was preaching a church, a large church, and they had the uh, practice of having uh, the service on the radio. And so I was making the point about, you know, how this, this here's Jesus. He, you know, he embraces us in our, in our fleshly humanity. See, our problem is never that our theology isn't spiritual enough. It's usually it's not earthly enough. It's not raw enough. And so this, here's Jesus sticking his fingers in the man's ear. So I made the comment in the sermon, kind of off-the-cuff comment, that I had seen, like many of you, hundreds, yea, thousands of Christian paintings and portraits. And my wife is here, she'll tell you. And we love seeing the, we love going to see the museums and seeing Christian art, etc. And I'd seen like almost every scene in the Bible depicted in art, you know, in the British Museum, etc., etc., etc. I'd never, ever seen this particular scene of Jesus sticking his fingers in a man's ears. Never. And I must make that comment. So several months passes by, and I get in the mail a long rolled-up tube. I unrolled it, and there was this beautiful charcoal drawing of Jesus sticking his fingers into a man's ears. And it came in a very theologically powerful way. It came from a man who was incarcerated in Connecticut. And he'd heard the sermon on the radio and decided to draw me a picture, uh, a, a charcoal picture of Jesus with his fingers in man's ears. Here's a man bodily imprisoned 
who realizes that Jesus sticks his hands through those bars and symbolically, theologically, sticks his fingers into his ears. You see, this is the positive message of, of the whole Christian ministry. Our, in some ways, our whole ministry is about us sticking our fingers into the world's pain, isn't it? This is the remarkable opportunity. But we cannot do that with boldness unless we realize that though bruised and mangled by the fall, our bodies are good and that God has called our bodies to be icons or windows of his grace, not only to ourselves, but to the world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would be windows. We would be windows of your grace. And that, Lord, you would remind us of the holy mystery that we can't even fully define, that we are bearers, image bearers of your grace and work in the world. Amen.